The reading today is from Luke 4, 1 through 13. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all that whole time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. But Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I want to start off with just a few things here. Uh, we are going through the Gospel of Luke for the next year and a half. And one of the reasons it's going to take a year and a half to get through the Gospel of Luke is because we're going to plant ourselves in certain scripture texts. And this text we are going to be in for the next three weeks because I am going to do and handle the temptations one temptation at a time. But I almost feel like uh, there, I, I will admit, I have a little maybe a more than a little insecurity around this one. Emily can tell you. Um, sometimes you write a sermon and you study for a sermon and you plan for it to be like, you know, 15 hours between studying and writing. And sometimes it's a little more than that. And sometimes it's a little less than that. When you're really lucky, like everything just comes together in five hours, it's done. And then sometimes like this one, you never seem to be able to get your words on the page. You ne it never seems to be able to come out right. And it never seems to be quite what you feel like your congregation or your city need to hear in this particular moment. And so you end up spending 60 hours on it. And then you have to stand up and preach. And it still doesn't feel right. So I apologize for any incoherencies. But I promise you I put the work in. Last year... Um, I read Dostoevsky's massive book, classic, The Brothers Karamazov, where Dostoevsky, a Russian writer, wrestles with the nature of faith and the allure of atheism in a world of human suffering. In one scene in the book, 
Dostoevsky puts in conversation two of the Karamazov brothers, Alexei and Ivan. Alexei is a young, energetic believer who is going into a monastery to become an Orthodox priest. On the other hand, his brother Ivan is the older, wiser, skeptical, atheistic brother. Dostoevsky puts these brothers in conversation, and in this conversation, Ivan, the older brother, the skeptical brother, tells his younger brother a story designed to show the absurdity of belief in the Christian God in a world of suffering. The story is called The Grand Inquisitor, and it is one of the most studied and one of the most debated stories in the history of literature, including in philosophy and existentialism. But what makes the story so powerful is that Ivan's inquisitor makes the case for not believing in God from the Bible. In particular, from the stories of the temptations of Jesus. The Grand Inquisitor's story is set during the Spanish Inquisition when the Catholic Church in Spain was killing accused heretics. And during that time, Jesus bodily returns to earth in Spain. And he begins working miracles. And he begins to attract a crowd. And eventually he attracts the attention of the church. And he is arrested and he is sentenced to execution. And while Jesus is in jail... The Grand Inquisitor, the highest of the priests, comes to visit Jesus and begins to scold Jesus for not taking the devil's temptations. In every temptation, the Grand Inquisitor says that the devil offered Jesus a chance to save humanity. Turn the stones into bread, and everyone will have food, including you, Jesus. And because everyone will have enough food and because people will follow someone who feeds them and makes sure that their children will not starve because people want to naturally follow someone like that, Jesus, you could have also gotten worship and obedience out of it. All you had to do was turn the stones into bread. Prefiguring Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the Grand Inquisitor says, feed people, and they will then, then they will act as virtuous as you want them to. At this point in the story, Alexei, the younger brother, interrupts Ivan's narrative. He says, no, no, brother. You misunderstand completely. You see, it's all about free will. God 
gave us free will. Lack of food exists in the world because we chose a world of starvation instead of a world where we live under God's authority. And God honors our choice, even if it's bad for us. So you see, it's about free will. It is about God respecting human dignity. For Jesus to magically solve all our problems and the problem of starving children would be to undermine human freedom. Jesus will not rule the world through manipulating us with bread or forcing us to fawn over him. Alexei, the Eastern Orthodox priest, sounds like a good Methodist. But the Grand Inquisitor has a ready response. Human free will, he says, is not worth the price of starving children. Humans are not capable of handling the burden of free will. It is simply too big of a responsibility. As long as there is free will, there will be people who abuse free will. And as long as there is an abuse of free will, there will be some people who have too much to eat, and there will be some people who have too little to eat. And thus the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus, people will give up their freedom to the one who gives them bread. Hungry humans know that free will is not worth the price of hungry children. Jesus should have turned the stones into bread. Maybe it would have been coercive. Maybe it would have overridden our free will, but at least there would not be starving children because on this end of it, it appears that either God does not exist or God does not care. And either way, God is not worth worshiping because Jesus did not turn the stones to bread. Humans desire security more than we desire freedom. Free will is not worth the price of starving children. It is a worthy question, isn't it? This is what you come to appreciate about Russian writers is that they don't pull punches. They're not exactly concerned with niceties like American writers tend to be. It is a worthy question, isn't it? Is our free will worth all of this suffering? Is our free will worth it in light of Memphis's suffering the last few weeks? Is it worth it? And it's reasonable, isn't it? To expect that Jesus would want to feed people and alleviate suffering? It feels reasonable 
Now listen, of course, in the story, the temptation is offered by the devil to the individual Jesus. Jesus individually turns stones into bread in order to alleviate your own suffering. But if he can turn stones into bread for himself, the implication is that he could turn stones into bread and feed every hungry person. Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days hungry, paralleling the Old Testament story of all of Israel in the desert after leaving Egypt, hungry for 40 years. So it's not just a question about whether Jesus feeds himself. It is a direct parallel. Can Jesus feed hungry people everywhere? In other words, it is an individual temptation with collective implications. Do you feel now how reasonable the devil's temptation is? I want you to feel how reasonable this temptation is because I think the way we often think about this is that the devil is this cartoonish figure with pitchforks and horns standing on somebody's shoulder telling them to do something that is obviously bad. But that's not what's happening in this story. The temptation is to something good. Alleviate the pain of others and avoid pain yourself. Imagine a world where there's no Save the Children campaigns because no child is hungry. Imagine a world where there's no world vision because there's no poverty. Where there would be no Tyree Nichols shooting because there would be no poor communities patrolled by extra police. Imagine a world where the downtown shelters were not filled with women and children. Because Jesus turned stones to bread. There would also be no cross. Because Jesus can miraculously avoid all suffering, including his own. See, I want us to feel the moral quandary of this story. Because I think what we, what we do with these Bible stories, what we do with these Bible stories is that we are so used to them that we don't feel the moral quandary of them anymore. Or if we're so used to the answers given, right? Maybe when we were children, when we were younger, or the first time we heard these stories, we felt a little bit of tinge in our stomach or our heart, but then we had like a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or something come and give us a, a good answer that just alleviated all that tension. And what it does is it distances us from these stories so that we don't have to feel them, but it is through feeling them that we engage them. And I think when we allow ourselves to feel this story and stories like it, I think we have to admit our, to ourselves that my gosh, 
it seems like over and over and over, Jesus just often refuses to be who we want him to be. He refuses to do what we expect him to do. It's the, look, look, this is the temptation of the devil. This is the temptation of the grand inquisitor. If you are God, if you are the son of God, if you are the Messiah, then act how I think God should act. Act how I think the Son of God should act. Act how the Messiah, how I think the Messiah should act. Do things that only God can do. Turn stones into bread. Alleviate your pain and alleviate ours. Jesus had but to give a nod of agreement and every utopia could have been brought to pass. Every hope have been realized and every dream been made to come true. Instead, he turned down the offer. He turned down the offer to alleviate pain, his and ours. Because the real temptation here what this is really about is to fulfill our expectations of what God should be like. We have in our idea, in our mind, what a God who is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, omniscient, that is all-knowing, would do omnibenevolent, that is all loving, we know, we know what a God like that should do, how a God like that should behave. We come to the story with expectations already about what a God like that should be like. And so the temptation, Satan is offering Jesus the chance to be the thundering Messiah we want. Be everything they dreamed you would be. Which makes it all the more important that we notice the contours of how Luke tells this story. Because Luke places the temptations sandwiched between two important things. He places the temptation of Jesus before Jesus goes public with his ministry. And he places the temptation after Jesus' baptism. Before Jesus goes public and after Jesus' baptism. Now listen, this matters. Luke is showing us before he ever goes public, before Jesus ever starts his ministry, before he ever works a miracle, before he ever feeds 5,000, before he ever provides food for the hungry, that miracles and providing food will be a part of what he does. 
but it will not be the main thing he does. God's Messiah will not act always how we want God's Messiah to act. God's Messiah will not be our miracle worker. God's Messiah will not be our warrior. God's Messiah will even eventually die at the hands of the Romans who we wanted him to overthrow. The most disappointing thing is not that he doesn't stones, turn stones into bread. The most disappointing thing to us who already think we know what a God like that should be like is that he fails by going to a cross. He fails to be who we think he should be. Jesus is not who we want. Jesus does not do what we want. We want a God who alleviates our suffering and instead what we get is a God who enters into it and does not sidestep it, but feels it deep within himself in a way that we could never even understand ourselves. Now, how do I know and how do we know that this is really not directly about bread and about social justice, but rather is about Jesus' identity and what Jesus does? We know this because of how the devil frames the temptation. If you are the son of God, turn the stones into bread. You can't lose the first phrase and get what is happening here in the temptation. This temptation is rooted in this premise. Do what everything thinks the son of God would do. Be who we think the Son of God ought to be. Meet our expectations. Prove yourself to be the Son. And that is why it matters that we understand that the temptation comes on the other side of Jesus' baptism. The root of the temptation is to be God's son by doing rather than being. Can I say this to a group of very high achieving types and Americans who are constantly told, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, achieve, accomplish, prove, demonstrate that you are worthy by doing. And the temptation that Jesus faces here is to prove who he is by doing rather than simply being. It is to prove his identity by the applause, even the legitimate applause of others rather than the baptism words of Jesus, you are my loved son. I am pleased with you. Here's the temptation. In baptism, God proclaimed God's love and pleasure for Jesus, full stop. In the temptation, the devil wants him to prove God's love and pleasure through doing things. Prove it. 
prove your mettle by acting how we think you should act. The issue is sharp and clear. Either we believe the voice of baptism, you are the child of God, or we believe the other voice, you are the child of God, uh, or we believe the other voice, you are the child of God, when you can prove it by signs. And Jesus is rejecting the temptation to prove it. He rejects proof as a validation of his ministry or his identity. The son doesn't need to prove that he belongs to the father. He simply is the son of the father. And it's that identity that gives him the ability not only to resist the temptation, but to endure suffering throughout his ministry and at the cross. So I'm going to say something very specific here. I'm going to say it in a very specific way, and I want you to let it sit with you. Jesus knows that sometimes, sometimes, asking for a miracle is the last thing we should do. Sometimes we must witness with our wounds, not by going around them. When I was fired from that other church uh, for preaching a sermon on racism that they asked me to preach, One of the prominent members of the church, David, uh, found out about it, that this was happening before the rest of the congregation. And so he texted me and said, can we go to lunch? And I said, yes. So over lunch, he said to me, he said, listen, this isn't public yet. We can reverse this. I'll see what I can do. I, can, I, I will see if I can make sure that this doesn't happen to you. I can get you your job back. I'll try. And I expressed and I still feel deep, deep gratitude for somebody who wanted to do that for me. I doubt he would have been successful anyway, but I was deeply grateful. But what I said to him was, please don't do that. For one thing, I now know that I can never be myself here. And for another thing, I knew before I preached that sermon that it could end this way and that this would be the cost. I told them before I preached that sermon, this is what's going to happen. I will not sidestep the cost in hopes for a miracle. Because sometimes, sometimes, the last thing we should do is ask for a miracle. Sometimes we must witness through our wounds 
not try to avoid them. We see this truth again and again in Luke's gospel. Luke tells us that after Jesus passed all the temptations, and we'll get to the other two in coming weeks, but after he passes all the temptations, Luke tells us that the devil left him for a more opportune time. The devil tries throughout Luke, comes up every once in a while. The opportune time seems to arise again and again, but the climactic opportune time comes when Jesus is on the cross and there is the temptation to take himself down off the cross and prove again that he is the Son of God. To answer the, Jesus, the, the devil's temptation while on the cross would have alleviated Jesus' pain. And it would have proved God's existence through miracles compelling all of us to just believe. But Jesus understood that sometimes, sometimes asking for a miracle is the last thing we should do. Sometimes we witness through our wounds. The Grand Inquisitor tells Jesus that by honoring human freedom, Jesus not only ensures that humans will suffer, but ensures that he himself will suffer, that he will be rejected and crucified. The Grand Inquisitor says this to Jesus because he knows that people want someone who will compel them to believe through miracles, especially the miracle of providing security. And you know what? The Grand Inquisitor is not wrong. That's what makes this story so compelling is the Grand Inquisitor is not wrong. We do want security more than we want freedom. How do we know that? Come on, folks, it's everyday life. We have established entire denominations around the desire to make us feel secure. Like we're the only ones who get it right. And we're God specific. We feel so secure and sure of ourselves because we get it right. We formulate church doctrines to make sure we feel secure in light of the fact that God is so unsafe and uncontrollable. We have built governments around the idea of national security. America has a military budget that's like four times larger than anybody else's, and we still don't feel secure. But we're going to keep giving up our freedoms because we want to feel secure. We put kids in cages on the border in the name of border security, and we still don't feel safe. So we keep voting for politicians who keep stirring the pot of our insecurity because they know we will give up our freedom for security. We have created police units that terrorize black communities in Memphis in the name of security. And we have done it for decades. 
Tyree Nichols was not the first one. But he might be the first time that white people actually were like, oh, I don't feel safe with that. Jesus shows us that God is so unsafe and unpredictable and not what we want that despite all our desire for security, that is not what God looks like when God shows up. Our God neither avoids suffering nor magically solves it, but rather enters into it and experiences the fullness of it on the cross. Jesus' own mother, remember what Simeon said, his own mother will feel the sword of pain pierce her own soul. His own mother knows the pain of her son being killed by an unjust police force. He did not ask for a miracle. He witnessed through his wounds. And through those wounds recreates a world of love and justice and dignity and integrity. So please, in whatever else you heard me say today, do not mistake me for saying that Jesus refused to turn stones into bread because God merely sits on manicured divine hands in the heavens and doesn't care. Those hands were pierced with nails to show us what God is like. That God has entered into our city suffering and knows it from the inside out. That God was murdered in the name of security. That God's hands were pierced by those who were threatened by the fact that non-coercion and love can actually feed people physically and spiritually. And that, that's why this first temptation deserved its own sermon. And that is why Luke is the spicy gospel.